we kind of got sidetracked a little bit because of the Siemens Gamesa 5X uh, blade breaking down in Brazil. Yeah, but that's interesting. Everyone wants to hear about that. I do because I have a, a real bone to pick about the way that that blade was tested. And and I, I just need to understand from Rosemary in this episode, you, you hear me question her like, what is going on? Why did they not catch it in testing? And Joel's being very sly because I feel like he knows more than he's telling us. But uh, between Rosemary and I, we actually have a bet. And I'm going to end up sending her $20. I know that I am <laughs> uh, to Australia. But I think it's a good bet. I think we need to hash out what's happening. Right, Rosemary? I think we need to figure out what's happening with Siemens Gamesa. Yeah, yeah. So we, we speculate a lot about what's going on. We're kind of piecing it together, Nancy Drew's story, um, Nancy Drew's style from the little reports that we're, we're hearing. And I, I think, you know, we've got a lot more information in the, the latest one that we talk about in today's episode. Yeah. And we also talk about renewable technicians being in huge demand in the United States, particularly in construction. And then the sea twirl uh, vertical axis wind turbine that looks like they have another project up in Europe. So it's pretty exciting. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with Vice President of North American Sales for Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxum, and international renewables expert, Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Sea uh, Twirl and Contiki Winds have signed an MOU to explore opportunities for electrifying offshore assets using Sea Twirl's floating wind turbine. So this sounds interesting uh, because we haven't heard a lot out of Sea Twirl lately. So Sea Twirl makes these vertical axis wind turbines, uh, but Sea Twirl has received a purchase order, which is the first step to making money, and that's where they need to get right uh, to develop. They're going to develop a smaller wind turbine. Uh, they call it S one point five to to withstand all of the torture of the North Sea. It's Sea Twirl's first commercial revenues, and it's a milestone for the company. So that's fantastic. Uh, now, Rosemary, this is a little bit different. So th- what's happening here is uh, they're going to, c- the Contiki wind is going to combine Sea Twirl's vertical axis uh, floating uh, wind platform uh with an existing farm. So it's basically going to plug in a turbine into an existing farm, uh, not create a farm for the sea twirls. So it sounds like it's sort of a one-off, but it's on a trial basis, but they're getting paid to go make this turbine. That's a really good first step, right? To actually get a part in service. Yeah, I think it is a logical next step. Um, I've been following C12 a bit, part of the consulting work I do I, um, is involved with, you know, innovative wind technologies. And so I follow what's going on in some of these new wind companies for some of my clients. And um, yeah, so maybe I can just talk through a little bit about what their their history has been because C12, and this is their first, it's, it's not really a sale because it's, yeah, it's the purchase order for development, but um it makes it sound like they're brand new, but they're not. It was, they tested their first prototype in 2007. Um, and then um, that was by their inventor tested that. So C12 was founded a few years later in 2012. 2015, they installed their first, um, C12's first prototype, their, what they were calling an S1, which is a 30 kilowatt prototype. And that was installed um, in the sea outside of Lusakil in Sweden. Um, 
So that's been going now for eight years and they have got videos on their, their website and they do every now and then, you know, stop in to check in on progress and how it's going. So I haven't looked in, in, in the last, uh, maybe nearly a year now, so I'm not exactly sure it's still in there, but it's got, you know, quite some operating hours on it. Um, and then they began manufacturing for their S2, the second version, one megawatt unit in 2020 um and they're still saying that they're planning to install that this year but the last update that they had on their s2 other than this proposed um i think that this um development funds is supposed to be for the s2 their last update was in november last year where they had placed an order for some bearings so i expect that it'll probably be pushed through to next year or later so, yeah, I think it definitely makes makes sense now to put in, you know, a single turbine in an existing wind farm. You know, they don't have to reinvent every wheel in, a, in an offshore wind farm, you know. Um, I have sort of been a bit critical of um, their development process that they've just immediately gone offshore Um I think if I was the owner of um, C12, then I probably, because they've got a yeah, vertical axis wind turbine um, and floating um, and there's, it's, you know, it's very different from existing offshore wind turbines. And if it was me, I would want to be testing out as much of that onshore as I could because, you know, the offshore environment is, um, it's harsh, but it's also really difficult to get out there. So, you know, like there's a lot of failures associated just with the fact that it's in an offshore environment, but there's also some things that would have failed onshore, you know, like while they're figuring out exactly how the aerodynamics work, they've got, like I said, it's a vertical axis wind turbine, so it's not as well known the aerodynamics about that. Um, and the, you know, kind of full scale operational behavior is not as well known as um, horizontal axis wind turbines. and so every time that they have to, you know, replace a, a bearing that wasn't spec right, it turned out, or, um, you know, repair a blade that suffered fatigue damage or, you know, I'm inventing these problems, but assuming that they would have had a lot of problems of that kind, it's really expensive to do that when you've got to get, get out and offshore. So, um, yeah, that, that would be the only thing that I would probably do differently, but it is good to see that they're piggybacking onto an existing, existing project to hopefully you know, get this out and get real operational experience. Yeah, I, I think this makes sense on the financing side, right? Go slow, get things working, figure out all your engineering problems, and then sort of move on. And in, in the U.S. on technician side, which seems to be a big area of growth, there is massive numbers of jobs in wind and solar at the moment. California and Texas are leading in clean energy deployment and also have the most wind and solar jobs. Uh, solar and wind accounted for 87% of the new electric power generation jobs in 2022. All right. So solar is obviously much larger than wind in terms of total jobs because if you've driven across the United States recently, like Joel has, <laughs> there are solar panels going up everywhere and there's there were 300 well there's 340,000 jobs in solar alone in 2022 joel well i think part of the why solar has the boom and why i mean wind is is as well right but a wind farm versus a solar farm say 
10 gigawatts to 10 or 10 megawatts to 10 megawatts, there's just less, and that's not big, right? But that's, there's less people that need to maintain that solar farm. However, when you're installing the solar farm, it takes piles of people. Because basically, it was installation of a solar farm is five phases, right? You're looking at the civil and the civil and pre-construction, all the dirt work that needs to be done. Then you have survey and survey and layout goes goes with that one as well. And then there's pile driving. Then there's the mechanical installation. Then there's the electrical installation. And if you've ever driven past one of these sites when they're in the middle of that mechanical or pile driving installation, because mostly it, it rolls on, right? You start civil work starts. It's just about fifty percent done. Then the pile driving starts. They get through, and as they move through, then the mechanical guys start, and they move through, the electrical guys start. But you can have hundreds of people. I mean, there's trucks everywhere and little side-by-sides and skid steers and people running around like rats on these things. They're just all over the place. It's like organized chaos. Sometimes it's just chaos. Um, but there's a lot of jobs in construction and solar. It's it's huge. Um, and then once they're commissioned, they just don't take as much to maintain as a wind asset does, right? There's no rotating equipment there's no blades. There's no, you know, the mechanicals are pretty much in place. If there's an issue, it's a, you can dispatch someone to go troubleshoot it or something like that. So that's why there's a little bit of a disparity there in the jobs. I think at solar and wind, at least based on data here, we're seeing this is, this is all a Department of Energy put out some stats. Construction makes up a significant portion of the renewable energy jobs with about half of them of those construction, about half of solar jobs are in construction, about a third of the jobs in wind are around construction, which seems about right based on what I have seen. But yeah, it seems like maybe some of the, probably some of the better paying jobs appear to be in construction. Obviously there's travel involved and some late nights and weekends on the construction side, but it's probably, uh, yeah, probably going to make a little more money in construction at the moment because there's more demand. You know, one of the things I talk to, I talk to a lot of wind energy companies, ISPs, um, and everybody we talk and we talk all the time about the shortage of workers. But now the problems, people are starting to dig into the problem a lot more in the field and trying to understand, you know, at this point in time, the majority of the people are soaked up, the, the people that are knowledgeable, right? And if you are knowledgeable and you're not working in July in the U.S., Maybe you need to take an internal look at yourself because there's something you're not doing right as a person because there's jobs everywhere, right? So the trouble now is that almost everybody new to the field is going to be 100% green, is going to need to be trained somehow um, because the, the, anybody that's got experience in this, in this sector, is they're working. So the big places, if you're going to be in wind and work wind construction – you're going to be where at this right now? Like what, in 2023, where are the hot spots for wind construction? The wind corridor in the U.S., of course, you're in Texas. You're up and through the Midwest, Iowa, Minnesota, South Dakota. Um, quite a bit actually in Illinois uh, is what I've heard. Uh, but then you're getting some east, eastern Nebraska, a lot of actually quite a bit of wind farms going up in Wyoming. Um in in California, a lot of repowers going on, but I don't see a lot of brand new wind farms going on out there. I think California is mostly solar, right? It seems like wind is sort of dying off there. Solar is anywhere they can get in the queue and get, <laughs> and get a permit accepted, to be honest with you. There's a lot, a lot of solar on the East Coast, right? The Carolinas and Virginia and stuff, they're putting in solar everywhere over there because that's the renewable energy source there. You're not doing wind farms over there unless they're offshore because the wind resource onshore is nil. So the outlook for wind jobs is really high. 
And just looking online, obviously the government in the United States goes and does surveys and tries to get a sense of it. I think the the better way to feel the pulse of the wind industry is to look at the job posting boards, monster.com, LinkedIn. I saw a LinkedIn post today. People are looking for 10 technicians coming up in July. It's like, it's already July and you need 10 technicians. Yikes, it's a little late. Uh, but yeah, if, if you're competent, you should be able to find some work at the moment. Yeah, Indeed. Yeah, Indeed is another place. Yeah, Th- those, those are good places to check. I, I know people reach out to me occasionally like, hey, where are the wind jobs? Like, Go to the job boards. That's where all those jobs are posted. Scroll through LinkedIn. Every ISP is hiring. I think technicians miss out on, on the LinkedIn piece. I think the, the companies post on LinkedIn, but I'm not sure all the technicians are there. There are a significant portion of technicians on LinkedIn, but you see a lot of technicians still hanging around Facebook. And I don't know, think the job postings are there. Go to LinkedIn, right? Absolutely. Check out LinkedIn. As we speak on this, I just put in where, zero, no no place, and put wind turbine technician into Indeed, and 839 jobs showed up. Your top ones, your top ones, we'll give a little shout out here. Our top ones are Airway Services, which I think Vesta Zone's part of them. Um, Sky Climber, GE Renewable Energy, actually hiring traveling technicians, EDF, Vesta's, uh, Rangel Renewables, we know the team over there, uh, AES, Siemens is hiring some traveling technicians, Duke for some large corrective people. Um, so a lot of, lot of opportunities out there. And the way that the lightning season has been this spring so far, there's a lot of blade repair jobs at the moment. So yeah, a lot of jobs. Keep your eyes open. Check out LinkedIn. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound. But Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet. And it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. Well, it happened down in Brazil. A Siemens Gamesa 5X machine blade broke, and the lucky operator was NG. So down at the Santo Agostino wind farm, uh, blade snapped off. Uh, NG decided to, to shut down the farm, at least temporarily, to figure out what is happening. And now we've, we've heard through the grapevine in the news reports that the, the, the blades for the 5X machines seem to have some sort of defect. Uh, I'm... I'm guessing that this is not the last time we're going to hear this, but it sounds like Siemens Gamesa has crews out trying to talk to customers, talk to blade uh, companies, just trying to, uh, one, understand, and and two, reassure everybody they're going to try to take care of the problem. But Joel, have you heard much, or Rosemary, have you heard much of what the exact issue is and what what companies and operators are supposed to be looking for on, on these 5X blades? I haven't heard anything, um, but Joel's grapevine is probably higher quality than mine. I was going to defer to Rosemary because I don't want to be the one that says <laughs> what, what I've heard. Um, so I'll tell you this, Alan, we'll, we'll stay tuned in the next few weeks. And when I've got something definitive where I feel comfortable sharing, I'll share it. 
Um, however, we have it is known in the industry, like in the in North America at least, that the 5X SG145s have got some issues. Again, I, I don't want to be the one who says exactly what I what I believe they are until uh, I can be 100% certain on you. But I would imagine that with this happening right now, uh, there's some Siemens Gamesa engineers on a plane, hopefully heading to Brazil if they're not already there already, uh, diving into this thing to to better understand. I think they know what the issue is, but when you finally get a failure, it's nice to get your hands on it, understand exactly what the failure mode is, because the more details you can get forensically about the failure mode, the better you can uh, engineer a retrofit to fix it. But maybe we can do a little bit more speculating now based on this latest um, bit of information, because I guess I've been just, you know, piecing it together to kind of drip by drip by drip the uh, the announcement from the CEO a few weeks ago that we spoke about well, a couple of episodes back was obviously um, alerted us beyond a shadow of a doubt that it wasn't just rumors that maybe there were issues that, you know, definitely there are with this particular turbine. Um, but now we see, so this wind farm that, it, you know, was affected this time, it's 434 megawatts, so not small. Um, assuming that they're all the same turbine, it's not normal that you would, you know, mix up types. So they've got, you know, over a thousand blades. It's not, I, I don't think it's commissioned yet, right? They're in the middle of installing it from what I can gather, they've totally suspended um, work on that. So, I mean, I've worked on some pretty serious blade failures before um, and they will stop the affected turbine for that. Um, if it's super duper serious, they'll take the blade off the turbine um, for that. But this is not just that they are stopping a turbine from operating. They're not just stopping turbines from operating across the whole site, you know, they're not even continuing to install. So they're, um, we can learn a couple of things ab about it from that. First, that it is a significant defect because it's occurred before the turbine was even commissioned probably, or if, if it was commissioned that specific one, it was a very, very early days. So it's likely not a fatigue issue. It's something big that it's hard to even imagine how that blade would have passed the you know static tests let alone the fatigue test and then fail so quickly in the field we know from what the ceo said that they think that this issue affects was it 15 to 30 percent or something um so you know a lot um i think that they've also um suspended manufacturing of these blades in their factory in brazil at least so perhaps they've isolated it down to that one factory but sounds like they're gonna expect that they're gonna have to do a major redesign um at a minimum but what their strategy is to mitigate the blades that are already out there they're not installing them on turbines um, you know, that's significant cost. If they've got workers and equipment that's sitting around doing nothing now, that's not for fun. That's because they think that that wasted money is less than what they would um, have to spend to fix these blades up tower. Or maybe it's so serious that they can't fix it up tower. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. Um, so, I mean, maybe it's a benefit here that I haven't heard too much on the grapevine because I know that I'm not saying anything that I shouldn't be because I'm just piecing this all together from, you know, public information saying that anybody anybody can come by. 
But I mean, is it even possible that they could be looking at replacing all of those blades? I've never, it's so rare that you ever replace even one blade. I've, you know, worked on some, some defects where you had to maybe replace half a dozen or so would be a huge, huge, big deal. But could it, could it be that they don't have a solution for this and may not get a repair solution? Happens occasionally. I've never seen it fleet wide before, though. I do know, like, in I've seen it before where you can have a fleet wide issue and have to go and do a massive repair or retrofit basically campaign, right? Whether that's up tower or down tower kind of remains to be seen, but I, I've got to think or I got to hope for Siemens' sake that there's something that they can do to rectify this issue uh, that is hopefully an up tower repair, is, is in what happens in my mind. Yeah, but it seems to me like they're at least worried that they won't be able to find an up tower repair. And I mean, I've worked a bit with, um, you know, like developing new repair methods and getting them certified. So it could just be that they have to come up with a new method and they're working through the process to get that tested and, and certified so that they can they can roll it out. Um, usually, like, there's not a lot that you couldn't re- repair in a in a blade um some of the big things are you know if there's issues around like um protrusions or, or something like that then that's difficult to fix um and a lot of stuff to do with carbon carbon fiber um there's not uh it's not possible to repair everything like that but otherwise it's a matter of is this repair going to be so intensive that it would actually be cheaper to replace the, the blade because you know when you're trying to repair um bits of composite material you you can't just, you know, like cut cut out the damaged part and um, plug in a new one. You have to, because the strength is transmitted through the the lengths of the fibers. So when you cut it, then there's no way to transfer the the loads from, you know, one cut fiber to the next one. You need to do a really long chamfered joint so that it's a, you know, gradual transition and you're getting some load transfer. And so you can imagine that when you have like a, a defect that you've got to cut out, then you need to chamfer around the edges. The The size of the repair grows and grows and grows. And then you start, you know, okay, so it gets bigger. And now you um, had to cut away, you know, the bit that was over the web or something. So then you've got a new feature that you've got to figure out how you're going to transfer the load back down to the web like it was supposed to, um, you know, get the the glue joint right and everything. And you can end up, if there's a lot of layers affected and it's in a bad location, you can end up with a repair growing and growing and growing until it might be, you know, like 10 meters or more. And then you start to be basically trying to rebuild your whole blade in field and it's it's not worth it. Um, it must be something like that. Yeah, let's do some armchair math on it, right? We know that right now, if I had to go one turbine, I have to mobilize a crane and replace three blades. The cost of three new blades... Plus the crane can be upwards of 1.3, 1.5 million US dollars. So, and that's, you know, you're going to mobilize a crane you're going to do. So we'll say, just say a million dollars per turbine. That's $333,000 that you get to basically fix the blades that are out there. Um, so each blade, you'd have that much. 333000 if you have it still up tower, that is, man, six months worth of a team on there at least. Um with a 360-degree platform. You can do a lot of work in that amount of time, but there's no way in hell there's that many technicians and horsepower available in the in, in the market to do that kind of retrofit campaign. It's just not going to happen. And cranes, like it, like it's just not going to happen. 
they're lucky to, in a, a certain sense, because they are still in construction. So they've still got the cranes there. Their blade is still in production. So that's at least something. Um, but I think that there's another piece of information we can gather from this new story as well, which is that the problem is worse than what they thought it was when we um, heard that announcement from the CEO a few weeks ago, because they were continuing to install um, more of this blade that they knew was affected. And they wouldn't have done that if they expected it to, um, the blade to break up tower. You know, that's obviously the the effect of their failure is worse and faster than they were expecting it to be. So that $1 billion figure that they um, estimated before, I mean, we knew at the time that those figures don't get smaller, right? That, you know, any, <laughs> any um, serial defect campaign you've ever worked on, they just grow and grow and grow and grow. Um, so I think we're starting to see, we're seeing the first part of key growth now that that figure would have to be blown out of the water. And it was huge to start with. There'll be some wild lawsuits that come from this because so here again, from the insurance side of things, insurance, uh, there's two different policies or there's multiple policies, right? But there's two big, there's, there's a ton of policies, but there's two very large separations and that is construction policy and operating policy. So you're going to have the construction and sometimes the construction policies won't have business interruption costs on them. But now you're starting starting to get into massive business interruption costs because the, technically some of them haven't started operation, or maybe these are commissioned just like days ago, and so they technically have started, but you don't even have a backlog of what the business interruption cost would be. But business interruption costs and in insurance are regularly three to one property damage, right? If you got a half a million dollars in property damage, a lot of times business interruptions one and a half. So the sorting of this out in this big battle that's going to come because this insurance companies aren't going to pay for it. They're not going to want to pay for it, right? They're going to sue Siemens Gamesa to say, you guys are the ones that are on the hook for this. And then the asset owners kind of caught in the middle. The queues that are stacked up are going to suffer. That It's 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 not pretty. I, I just don't understand coming out of aerospace, like how this wasn't caught in the structural testing. What happens? It feels like on the lightning side, I feel like things it's the same thing's happening on the lightning side. Like there's all these certifications and everybody's happy and these wind turbines get out in the field and they get blown up. And and now on the structural side, I don't understand how they have passed a structural test. And yet shortly thereafter, they knew they had problems. I mean, how long have we been talking about the 5X problem? For like months, right? A year? Yeah, I'm I'm with you now. I wasn't last time we spoke because I assumed that it was a, a smaller, um, slower fault. But now that one has broken within, you know, very, at most, you know, a very short period of operation. Um, that is really suggests that that should be picked up in the testing. Because I do... I, I do think that the structural testing of wind turbine blades is far closer to reality than what um, the lightning testing of of wind turbines is. There are still there are still issues. You know, you can't get um, when you test a wind turbine blade, you have to apply the load in you know fixed positions. So for the structural test, they attach some straps at certain you know points along the span of the blade, and then they pull it to bend it, right? Um, so it's not exactly the same as when a gust of wind blows a blade and that's acting continuously over the the whole blade. Um, but in certain key points, especially at the blade root where the loads are the strongest and the stresses are the, the highest, that is a pretty good representation of, um, you know, what happens. And fatigue load, 
Yeah, yeah, it, it is at the at the blade root. Yes, not not everywhere along the the span of the blade, but it's very rare that you would see you know a real structural problem towards the tip of the blade because the loading is so much less. Because you know it's like a big cantilever beam, right? Um, when you load a a beam, the um the where it's supported, that's the the biggest load, and that's it. It should break either close to that where the stresses are highest, or it will break in a um a discontinuity of some type. So either where the material changes suddenly or the geometry changes suddenly, that's where you see stress concentrations or a defect would also be a kind of discontinuity where you get a big stress concentration around there. And so you can, um, those would be the two places that you would see a failure. Fatigue testing is, is also fairly similar in that, you know, they get a couple of exciters on the blade. I think I, I went through the process last episode, maybe. I feel like I've, I've explained this recently. Yeah. And they, you know, they get the blade wobbling at its natural frequency and keep it going. And so, you know, for it, it's not completely accurate the whole way along the blade again, but, you know, towards the, the root, it is doing a pretty good job of representing the, the major loads. What it can't do is some of the, um, you know, less frequent or less severe things. So um, you do, can't accurately represent gravitational loading because you don't change the, the direction uh, in the same way that, that it does um, on a wind turbine. And then the other thing, which ties into, I think, another article that you have on the list for today, you can't accurately um, represent the load distribution and the way that that causes twisting and torsion. That is, that is not really adequately covered by the um, physical testing that is done on wind turbine blades but you know overall it they are in general doing a good a good job of representing it and the evidence of that is that you know they are pretty reliable um over you know decades of operation this is this is the first time that i've and, and i mean i don't know exactly what's happened but it seems to me like this should be an issue that was caught in testing and it, it hasn't been. And I think that this is the first time I've seen something so egregious like this in my, in my career that should have been caught in testing, structural testing, but wasn't. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. I'll go back to Joel's point, which is the insurance companies are going to be looking for a, somebody else to, to, to hold responsible. And so will Siemens Gamesa. The Siemens Gamesa is holding the smoking gun. And they've already put it out in a press release. <laughs> but... There, as, as Rosemary has described to me many times, the blade has been, quote unquote, certified. It's been blessed, approved, whatever you want to call it, by the certification body, right? That says, you do these tests, we're good to go and use in the field. Something is missing here. Is it the, is it the, the testing, the required testing to get that approval? There's something missing in there. Is it that the testing wasn't performed correctly and, or something was missed or an oversight? Uh, is it beyond that? I think that's where this ends up. I don't, because it's happening so soon in a lifetime of these blades, you start looking back up the chain and saying, okay, there was a couple of gates that we had to pass through 
and checkpoints, and we it passed, but how? Well, I mean, okay, so so I'm reading an article from 2021 here on Renews, and that says that UL is the certification company that did it. So UL has to give the type certification, right? You're a type 2S, you're a type whatever, blah, blah, blah. I don't, I think that we have to understand what circumstances the blade failed under before we can point back to the certification body as well. Well, time out. Well, time out. Because I do think if you're the certification body, it's your, you've taken on the responsibility, in my opinion, to be doing the advance work, right? You need to be looking four or five years ahead so that wind turbine operators don't get into this problem and OEMs get into this problem. You're supposed to be thinking ahead, designing these tests, bringing in industry experts like Rosemary to come sit around the table and go, hey, everybody, we need to improve this, that, and the other so that we can get rid of, of future problems. And this is the way you're going to, as an industry, move forward. That's what all the governing bodies, certification bodies are there for. I always, the FAA, having worked with the FAA and been in that situation a lot of times, yeah, you, you can't, can't ignore them, right? I agree with you 100% there, but as it sits right now, if we're just looking at facts, we don't know the circumstances that what this blade failed under, and they might have been outside of certification, right? The certification may still stole. So then, so we can't point fingers there yet. Yeah, and also, I mean, the, the fact that they've shut down, they've suspended a specific factory as uh, um, you know, as part of the, the evidence that we've got, I'm assuming that they're making this blade in more than one factory and that they're not suspended the other ones. It's, it's possibly a huge factory stuff up, um, you know, that they have, um, they have accidentally rolled out a manufacturing process or got, you know, a wrong fabric or s something that wasn't in the certification, um, package. I have heard this though, like Rosemary's not wrong. I've heard that before where the, you go back to the, the, the supplier of the turbine blade and they can do their root cause analysis internally and go back and say like, sorry, our supplier switched out a resin that we weren't aware of that passed certification here, but we didn't know blah, 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 blah. And that, that can happen. So that's possible that that could happen. However, that is a breach of QAQC processes, I'm sure. Yeah, or so, someone could have mislabeled a, a weight of fabric, and you know they've been putting in a lighter, a lighter fabric than they they should have been in a certain place, or someone put a, a mold marking in the wrong place so that you know ply is going up to the wrong place. Like all that sort of stuff happens from time to time, but I've I've never seen it happen. Um, you know, with this kind of effect and uh, this kind of consistency, and um, yeah consequence by the press releases and stuff i'm still in my mind saying this is a serial defect this is a design issue that's where i'm at still <laughs> but rosemary your design engineer is saying it's not no no i'm not saying it's not i'm saying it could be it, it could be a, a factory thing that would be the only way that you could say um it wasn't a problem with the the testing or the certification body um the other thing that i think is unlikely but i guess you've got to got to raise is that um, the certification body were misled because, um, you know, they do put a lot of trust in the information that they're given from the engineers in the manufacturers. Um, and, and I don't know if you followed the, the, the Boeing, um, that was it the Max or yeah, case well. So, you know, there's some sort of parallels there. I mean, a lot of the time when I was following that case, I was like, you know, all the things that were being slammed in the mainstream media, I'm like, 
yep, standard engineering, standard engineering, standard engineering. You know, that's the sort of, you know, how engineering works in any industry. And, you know, you, you guys just don't know um, how anything that you, anything you use is made or designed or manufactured. Um, so, yes, there is a, a tight relationship between manufacturers and certification bodies sounds dodgy but couldn't possibly be any other way because you know the certification bodies are never going to be more knowledgeable than the manufacturing companies and have um you know enough re resources they would need to be bigger than the manufacturing companies you know to have more more resources available to recreate from scratch without actually having access you know that so usually they're taking the um the manufacturer's word for it on how strong their materials are um, and a few other a few other things like that. Um, but it's also, it, it gradually increases with time, the amount of trust, you know, you, you might get less trust the first few times that they certify something. But after a while, when they see that, you know, the, the things that you've told them, uh, um, you know, have proven to be true, then yeah, they, they are taking your word for it a fair bit. But they're also taking your word for it that, you know, when you say this design is, you know, very similar to the previous one that you were already certified, um, they take your word for it that you're actually going to make that blade that you, um, that you had them certify as, as well. And yeah, but I mean, you can't put the certification body in the factory to watch every single blade and every single worker. Uh, I just uh, struggling to see how you could really have an arrangement without... Well, I mean, we saw in the the Boeing case that they're also taking their their word for it a lot. Aerospace is also more more critical because people's lives are much more at stake than they are in wind. Yeah. Well, it is. Is is the temperature of the planet more important than you know one airliner? I think that people would most people would say yes, right? I mean, this is a huge setback. It's it's not. We're going to fix this next week, Rosemary. And I think the certification bodies are supposed to be, having seen it from the other side, the certification bodies are supposed to bring together the technical experts to put them from the different companies in a room to decide what the process should be on the certification side and verify everybody's doing the right thing. But also, and this is where aviation comes into play, they have a production certificate. There are FAA people in factories until they can stand up a quality organization that can show they're competent. The FAA sits there and anything that happens that is abnormal, off-drawing, any deviation, it gets oversight, all kinds of oversight. And so companies can go on for years with the FAA having direct oversight. That's not a certification body. That's a, that's a federal agency. Well, you're going to end up with federal federal laws against blades breaking off. Well, you're just you're going to do it. You keep breaking blades like this, and this happened in the United States. If this happened in New York offshore, New York, there would be laws. That's the you don't want to end up there. I think you don't want to end up there. And I think if you don't, as a certification group, and there's many of them, there's not just one. You better be thinking ahead. Let's go back to the idea of uh, just talking about certification bodies. So now we know there's a bunch of them, right? DNV, Bureau Veritas, UL, like a, there's a there's a stack of groups out there. And they're technically for the, so the, for listeners as well, they're technically not like agencies of a government. They're privately held companies. They are just the ones that say that are that are looked at as the the experts in the space that can certify to say yes, this one will work. So they go to a third independent party. The OEMs do go to the third independent party, which is the one of these certification bodies, and they come back and say it's good. So, so here's a thought for you though. Now, 
we've been we talked about last week too. In since 2010, it's been model after model after blade type after blade type just thrown at him. Do you think there's a bit of almost like um complacency in like, oh, we got another review coming. Yeah, another month later, boom, you're good. Here's another one, another month later, boom, you're good. Is it a big short situation? I don't know. I've I've noticed some real clogging of their systems at the moment. Like it's it takes a long time to get anything through one of those agencies at the moment, um, from what I've seen. So I feel like maybe they're continuing to you know, I, I see that they're taking longer to get through stuff at the moment. So if they've got a higher workload, then um, it doesn't seem to me like they're just rushing things through to to keep keep business flowing. No one says that they're, they are, but if you design a system where that can happen, it will happen. The system's designed that way, right? This is the same thing about the, the mortgage bonds in 2007 and eight, right? You had the different rating agencies competing against one another for... The, the the AAA rating on a bond that was full of B's and C's, uh, it's a big short. But I think that one thing that keeps everyone honest um, along the way to a certain extent, like if I was a, a manager uh, or an executive at Siemens Gamesa and I knew about this issue and was tempted to conceal that so that it could get through certification, it's only, you know, like a year later after that, I don't know when they certified this blade, but you know, like it's not very long before this is going to come back to bite you far worse than a delay in your certification would have, you know, like it, it's hard to imagine unless was there somebody, you know, was the guy that, um, was their VP of engineering, like did someone retire six months ago or something like that would be the only way that I could really see that, you know, it's, oh, I can't be bothered to deal with this, you know, one more problem, just, you know, like sign off everything, everything's fine. I'm, I'm retiring because otherwise, like if the guy's still there, um, then I feel like what, what did they gain from, um, from trying to hide something like this? I, I feel like maybe they diminished, they didn't believe engineers. It was so serious possibly, but I can't imagine it was blatant blatant fraud because there's just, um, you know, a guarantee that it, you're going to get found out and it's going to be, um, come back and be pinned on you, you know? The way to obscure this is to push it back on the certification body and saying, we did the test to the standard. We are good. We did everything that was asked of us, which is, which would be absolutely, I think every wind turbine blade manufacturer has been down this route. We've did everything. We were supposed to do, and there's a there's a problem with the standard. Absolutely, they have to go there. I'll be so surprised if that's the outcome from this. Like, I mean, this standard has been working for decades. Um, this is not the conclusion from this is not that the standard is not um, is just grossly inadequate. You know, the standards are getting um, re refined over time, all all the time. But why? There's no way the certif the certification bodies they've got good enough lawyers where they're not gonna they're not gonna sweat over this thing they're not gonna have a they're still gonna have a Christmas bonus terrible reputational damage if it was pinned on them but I, I would be really surprised to see the problem um, coming down to the certification body um, and in any case none of the manufacturers are really relying on certification as the proof that their turbine is good enough the proof your turbine is good enough is that it it does it does what it says and that you don't get warranty claims and that you know the performance is good enough that your reputation means that people come and buy from you again like the 
you know, with lightning, you know, is the most obvious um, example of it. It's it's so easy to get lightning certification, pass your, you know, certification tests for lightning compared to having turbines with lightning protection systems that actually perform as expected in the field. That's the harder part. Um, you know, people are somewhere in between the two, but nobody is just like, oh, we've got lightning certification, you know, that's job done. Um, we can, you know, can, we can, can, can stop working on, you know, on this now. Have you heard that, Joel? If we can start talking lightning, we'll be here until the freak cows come home, man. I got a, a crisp American $20 bill. I'll certify that. I'm going to set it aside. If the certification, if we start reading stories about the certification body in Seamus Gamesa. I'll pay you one because it ain't going to happen. I'll give you an Australian $20. I'll make up the envelope to Rosemary right about now. <laughs> Drop it in the mail by the time it gets there. Yeah, here, here's your American $20. <laughs> I have been around this in the aviation too long. I just know how this always ends up. You know, it's everybody points to the next stage down the path. It's, I think it's inevitable. I know some people that you will. I'll give them a call and see what the inside scoop is. See if they're getting phone calls yet. All right. Joel will be the judge. Joel, Joel will be our spy... And, and we'll and we'll just send out an anonymous Slack <laughs> saying Rosemary is right, and I'll put a stamp on it to Australia, and away it'll go. And she'll have a nice coffee on me. How about that? Instead of 007, it's 005x for this one. See, this is a good. So this is what this whole podcast is about, right? Putting three people on who don't necessarily agree, but are all trying to get to the right answer. I think it's one thing. Rosemary thinks it's another. It's totally fine. I think this is good to hash this out because this has to be happening at every uh, water cooler, at every OEM <laughs> and operator in the world right now, right? At least I hope it is. Especially if they have an order placed for SGRE5X turbines. Our wind farm of the week is Appaloosa Run Wind Farm in Upton County, Texas, which is owned by Next Era Energy. It's near Midland and Odessa, Texas, kind of central Texas. They have 61 GE 2.8-127 wind turbines. Pretty cool site. The project was expected to cost around $260 million, and all that money went into the surrounding community. That's, that's a good bit of uh, coin. Uh, the, the farm is up and generating electricity just recently, and they have a virtual per power purchase agreement with DuPont de Nemours. Uh, and Rosemary, that's a big U.S. company. Uh, but they're going to take off 135 megawatts from that farm. And this part of DuPont's acting on climate goal of reducing uh, absolute greenhouse gas emissions by 30%, including sourcing 60% of electricity from renewable energy by 2030 and achieving carbon neutrality by 2050. So a pretty cool project between NextEra and DuPont. Uh, so... Appaloosa Run Wind Farm, you are our Wind Farm of the Week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie, and we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Oh.